0: 38% of our Jewish community cannot make ends meet. Feeding the poor and focusing on ways to get people out of poverty is not a shiny thing to fund. Disabilities and poverty are the two hardest things for which we need to raise money. And frankly, that's why the collective is so important. Poverty is something we can actually
1: solve. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoini. In What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in Jewish Philanthropy and in the Jewish community as a whole. Along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories and getting to know the people in our field and their fascinating personal stories. We also spread ideas that can help Jews and all givers change the world. Our guest today is Naomi Adler. She is the president and CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Philadelphia. She's a fantastic and effective philanthropic leader, a former prosecutor. We're going to be talking about that. A former United Way CEO and a member of the Board of Governors of the Jewish Agency for Israel. I recently heard Naomi speak brilliantly about Jewish poverty in Philadelphia at the first meeting of the National Affinity Group on Jewish Poverty, a new group initiated by the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation, along with us at the Jewish Founders Network. And in this conversation, we talk about poverty, along with anti-Semitism, Israel dialogue, the relationship between federations and independent funders, and more. Take a listen. Thank you, Naomi, for being with us and sharing your thoughts and ideas. We wanted to start a little bit by you, by who you are, and what brought you to this leadership role in the Federation.
0: Well, I come from a family of extremely active Jews. Um, I have a long history of cantors and rabbis in my past, and my father is a Jewish music composer. Uh, both secular and Jewish, I might say, and he's a survivor, as is uh, my grandfather and grandmother. Um, My mom wanted to be a rabbi, but in 1959, women were not allowed. She actually has a a letter of rejection from HUC because she's the wrong gender. She would have gotten in otherwise. Uh, So I come from a long line of people who are very learned and active in the Jewish community, but I never actually thought I was going to be a Jewish communal professional once I rejected the idea of being a cantor or a rabbi myself. I went to law school. Um, I came out of law school with lots of vim and vigor and wanted to make make the world a better place. Uh, I went to Mount Holyoke College before that, and that sort of instills, particularly in women, uh, this this ideal of of, uh, moving the needle on many different uh, avenues. And so I was a prosecutor in Rochester, New York, helping uh, particularly Cases in dealing with SVU, child abuse, domestic violence, rape, et cetera. And I saw the condition of families and I really wanted to change the condition of those families. So I wanted to run a nonprofit that would make a difference. To make a long story short, after I got some fundraising experience at Rutgers, I went into the United Way world and I was the CEO of a small United Way and then a large United Way in New York. Loved fundraising, loved making people's dreams come true, through philanthropy. And then I was recruited to come to Philly and all of a sudden, poof, I was a Jewish communal professional, changing the world of uh, people's families and trying to make the world a better place.
1: What is the uh, the aspects of being a prosecutor that are more useful to you as a Federation exec?
0: Well, first of all, once you've been in front of a jury, defending a child who's been abused by the offender across the room, there is nothing difficult to talk about. You know, I've been in front of big rooms and small rooms. I've asked for $5 million gifts and that's not scary because I've done the other. I've been in front of juries. I've known what would happen if the offender was released and I didn't prove them guilty of child abuse or rape or whatever it was. And I think, you know, comparably, if you think of your life that way, I learned very early on not to be scared of asking the question.
1: Interesting that you thought that working in the nonprofit world gave you more of a possibility to create change than working in government.
0: Right. I almost ran for office. I was asked to, you know, be on a pathway towards being the DA. I was from Rochester, so it makes sense. My hometown. I was thought about being a judge at one point. But, you know, when I learned how philanthropy and granting, really serious, evaluative, impact-oriented granting could move the needle, I realized that being a partner with government is a lot better and more impactful because nonprofits can actually push towards better change faster than governmental action.
1: And you're now one of the two or three women CEOs of major Jewish federations?
0: Right. So in the U.S., there's one other. uh, She just started in Cleveland, Erica Rudin-Laria. And uh, I'm the other. And for a while, I was the only one of uh, exec of a large city Jewish community. I will say, just for the record, there are 58-ish other women out of the 146 who are execs in uh, other Jewish federations and cities. But yeah, I'm it. And it's a privilege. I feel like I'm breaking some ceilings and some some perceptions. Uh, it's not always easy, but I'm pretty honored to be in that position.
1: For guys like me, that were guys, we may not be aware of what the experience of a woman professional are. You know, we're not, we're not always aware of our privilege. Let's put it that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the easiest way to describe it is think about... When women rabbis, you know, in the early days of uh, women becoming rabbis and cantors and other Jewish leaders, there aren't as many as there are otherwise. But um, so congregants had a hard time changing the perception of what a rabbi looked like in the Jewish Federation world. Think about the, you know, the, the Steve Nasseters and Steve Hoffmans of the world or Barry Schrag, etc. You know, there was this perception of this is what a Federation executive looks like. On the day-to-day, I will say that I have a different style than some others, and some people might say that women are more empathetic or thinking through certain things. In the era of Me Too, I am much more aware of what people go through. I too, like almost every woman I know, have gone through situations where we've been uncomfortable, Um, although it just happened with a male member of my staff. I, I I was very empathetic and knew exactly what to do i will say that also when it comes to women's philanthropy i think we have an advantage i think the female donors in my community when i go on a women's philanthropy mission it's a different type of relationship i'm a mom and there's a difference between a mom and a dad and dealing with jewish issues in that way i will also say it's a disadvantage because i'm not a guy's guy in this philanthropic world particularly there are certain affinity groups or groups of people who get together Some men like to be with men, some women like to be with women. And I literally had to think that through when it came to my executive team and my fundraising team, that we have a balance of women and men so people feel comfortable talking to whomever they want to about their philanthropic wishes or about other work that we're doing.
1: You had to come into Philly to a situation of, I wouldn't call it terminal, but the community needed some to go through a renewal process. And you are also in a city that, as a city, had gone through some rough patches. So what can you tell about that experience?
0: So, right, my immediate predecessor had been let go. And we actually uh, had had a series of Jewish Federation executives that didn't last very long. And so, you know, when there isn't stability in the top position, it is more difficult to make strategic plans fly. So there hadn't been for a while uh, that kind of stability. I was brought in from New York and had to really uh, learn and listen. I think one of the first things that I did the whole listening tour was more impactful than a regular listening tour would have been because I had to sort of apologize for a lot of the things that our Jewish Federation had either there was a perception about or we didn't consider being inclusive and we had to then rebrand. So what I did is I brought in a branding that talked about how you too can carry the light. You are invited, you are included. It's not all about how much money you give. It's about the impact and the numbers of people that we can encourage to uh, engage with us. We had fired and closed all of our regional offices and staff And there was great resentment. Nothing was done with community support. It was just done. And so there were quite a few people who felt like their their volunteer time wasn't going to be meaningful and that their dollars weren't going to be used effectively. We lost many, many years of engagement with those people and slowly we're bringing them back. But I've spent much more time than I ever thought uh, in meetings, just listening to people and, and understanding their story and trying to get them to understand that their Jewish federation needs them and that they're a critical voice to be heard.
1: And, and listening is probably the first step to change, right? Correct.
0: Yeah. And making sure that we're not just talking about inclusion, we're showing concrete steps that we changed all of our volunteer structure. We right. have opened up many more opportunities to be part of, of the federation. It is their federation, your federation. That's how we talk.
1: And And yet... You know, a federation today. You know, and this is something we talked about. You know, it's it's a little countercultural, right? Like here we are in a time of high individualism, where people want to feel their individual impact, and their um, they, they want to be empowered to do change on their own terms, and the federation is basically telling them to you know, and I'm making a caricature, right? But it's basically telling them, we're going to do it for you. We're going to be a sort of mediator between your philanthropy and the field.
0: So that's exactly what I don't say.
1: So what do you Um, say?
0: uh, and, And what I mean is that if somebody wants to engage with us in meaningful philanthropy, they can choose a combination of ways to give and to use their time, their talent, and their treasure to make impactful change. I will say that if somebody wants to move the needle in poverty, that by joining us and helping us with our really specific ways we are empowering those people who are in poverty to get out of poverty, that that is something that they can embrace. They can use their thoughts and intelligence to help us do it even better. And sure, part of what we do is collective giving but we use volunteers and others to help us evaluate the giving. You know, you can be as hands-on as you want. I actually think this is more impactful than a giving circle, where you might be swayed by a presentation and then you're gonna give your money. You're gonna find out six months to a year later that it didn't do what it was supposed to do. We hold people accountable. We hold agencies accountable because we are the gorilla in the room and we, ha- we give so much money to so many different agencies and we evaluate their progress and we'll yank a grant if they're not doing what they're supposed to do. I think, people, have, I think people are more interested in engaging with us than less because if they do it on their own, okay, at the beginning, they might go, oh, I feel very empowered. I made my own decision. But then we've had major philanthropists come back to me and say, you know what? I tried it that way. But it's much more time-consuming and expensive for me to find out whether or not my money was being used better than you guys to figure that out.
1: Right. And one of the conversations I have with funders on the other end is to say, you may have a great idea, but you still need a delivery mechanism. And the federation or a JCC or or a denomination can be that delivery mechanism for you
0: beautiful way of saying it. We're also the infrastructure, right? There are people who are extremely worried about anti-Semitism and security as they should be in the Jewish community. And there is no other organization that's focused on that across an entire, remember we're 2,200 square miles, we're very large. So we care about that little synagogue and media that you haven't even heard of that might be the next shooter's target. And so we can harden the whole community.
1: You mentioned anti-Semitism and you mentioned security. And, you know, our colleagues in the Federation world are actually very concerned about anti-Semitism per se, but also about what anti-Semitism is doing to the fabric of the Jewish community. Meaning today, what I see is that it's not so much what is anti-Semitism, but sort of having a lot of tolerance for anti-Semites on your side, of the political spectrum and a lot of things to say about anti-Semites on the other end of the political spectrum. I would assume that you and the Federation are particularly pressured by that. Why are you paying some, so much attention to white supremacy and not to BDS? Or why are you paying so much attention to BDS and not to white supremacy? So how do you, how do you deal with that on a daily basis?
0: Well, you, you've had a, a major issue for us and I'm sure all of our colleagues right first of all to try to remain neutral whenever you can in the politi- political spectrum and world that we're in it becomes increasingly more difficult you know we're supposed to stand for civility and and civil discussion and education our events and our programs are supposed to be empowering the people with the ability not only to give philanthropically but to learn more about and to create their own perceptions about what's going on, whether it be Israel or here or whatever it may be. And um, you are absolutely right. There are some people who are extremely focused on BDS and feel that that is the most dire type of anti-Semitism that's out there. And no matter how much we have said we fight against BDS every day and we support organizations like the Israel Action Network, etc. That's not enough for some people where that's what they wake up every day and read about and think about. On the other hand, that would be pretty disruptive to our community's health if I didn't think about the security issues with white supremacists or with other types of hate crime against our neighbors in the Black or Muslim community. And that, again, that's you know, when people say, gee, we don't need this large Jewish organization, this institution that's been around for 118 years, we don't need that anymore. I remind them at the, of the wide scope and plethora of issues just in the area of anti-Semitism about which you just identified. That right. We have to think about it all. I have a JCRC that is probably more controversial than it's been in a long time. This is the same JCRC that helped bring Soviet jury to light and protests in the streets to help the Soviet Jews come to America, many of whom who came to Philly. But now, you know, my goodness, they sent out an alert about what a national organization says about a tweet. And I get emails saying, you know, this is horrible. Why didn't you comment about this particular thing? When actually, we didn't comment at all. We were just trying to educate the community.
1: Right. Now, a bigger trend, I would say here that you know, things that used to unite us as a community now divide us. Like Israel was a big unifier and now is a big lightning rod for controversy. Whatever you are in the political spectrum, and anti-Semitism was the great unifier. We could all agree that when the is attacked, the is attacked. And now these two things serve the exact opposite purpose. They divide us even further.
0: So I'm going to respectfully disagree a bit. I absolutely understand both sides of the discussion about Israel as a force that can push people away, and the same thing with anti-Semitism. However, the day-to-day, it's so fascinating to me. We still understand when Pittsburgh, when the massacre in Pittsburgh happened, we immediately came together as a community. Thousands of people came to a vigil with us to say we stand together with our Jewish people. Now Was there controversy about uh, the fact that we invited Christian and Muslim clergy to be part of it? Yes. A certain section of our Jewish community said this is all about Jews and we shouldn't bring them in. The majority said, of course, we need to bring them in. We need to have them defend us just like we defend them. That's what community is about. So I'm not going to be naive and say it never is a dividing issue. There's always layers of the onion. When it comes to Israel, it's fascinating to me. If I can get a person to go with us to Israel, if I can get a person to go to a program that we run about Israel, if I can bring the greatness and the miracle of Israel to them, we have not had as many problems as, as others. Maybe it's because Philadelphia is such a pro-Israel community, but even when I sit with those who are not, quote-unquote, in the Israel tent and are critical of everything that's happening within parts of Israeli society or government, I sit down and I say, okay, I, I get it and I hear you. But if you're working with our Jewish community and our Jewish federation, you understand that we're not partnering with the government by giving them money. We're shining the light on poverty in Israel. We're shining on, the light on, on resilience and how important trauma counseling is in Israel. We're a health and human service organization. We're not a political organization. And as such, we have a very unique position and I actually think that the polarizing effect can be pushed away with intelligent discourse. If I could just talk to those people, and frankly, I will not stop. I mean, people talk to me a lot about why don't you just stop talking about it? Why don't you stop talking to those people who are criticizing? No way. I think it's important that we don't ignore anybody. Those kids at a particular university who, you know, want to march and sing and you know, let them march and saying, good for them, but then have a meeting with me and talk about what really matters. Let's talk about the facts.
1: And also sometimes critical engagement is a form of love. It's a form of engagement. I mean, Oh, many,
0: I love that. Absolutely true.
1: Many, many other kids that are criticizing Israel are just, they, you know, some of them, I agree, you know, could hold some problematic positions regarding the legitimacy of the state as such, but many others just honestly believe that they're helping Israel be better.
0: Right. And I always remind people, you know, let's look at the population. And when it comes down to it, there is such a very small minority of people that want Israel to disappear. It's such a small uh, minority of people. We shouldn't ignore them. And by the way, I did not say we should ignore BDS. I think it's incredibly important to understand it because it's become more and more well-funded. And that's incredibly important. You know, as we know, using social media can load the importance or magnify the number of people but in the in the reality of life so many people from philadelphia engage with israel we have 5 billion dollars worth of commerce every single year between philadelphia and israel and we have we bring thousands of people to israel it's such exciting times we can utilize everything from birthright to our own israel 360 uh, next gen trip and ignite people who others go, oh, they're not going to love Israel. Sure they will. If you bring Israel to them with honesty and respect and you try to answer their questions, you bet they will become more pro-Israel than the Zionists of 40 years ago.
1: The, The problem is that we many times try to give them talking points instead of engaging in conversation.
0: Exactly. I completely agree. That is why going on a mission trip is really important. One that's not trying to throw uh propaganda at you but gives you the opportunity to talk to the people that we bring them to
1: let's talk a little bit about an issue you mentioned before which is jewish poverty which is also now a big focus of the jewish funders network and you know, Thank you,
0: by the way. It's incredibly important and not enough people pay attention.
1: Yeah, well, that was our our realization that this was an important issue and we were not, we as meaning the philanthropic community, was not paying enough attention to it. Foundations thought that somebody else is taking care of this. Either the federations are funding poverty to a satisfactory level or the government is pouring a lot of money into this and we can focus on other things like Jewish identity and innovation and stuff like that. But it turns out that there are enormous unmet needs in Jewish poverty, and there's a whole mythical dimension of what Jewish poverty is and isn't. Most people think, for example, that Jewish poverty in New York is just about the ultra Orthodox population, and it's not true. 70% of poor people in New York City, of Jews, you know, poor Jews in New York City, are non Haredi. They're non-ultra-orthodox. So I know that you in, in Philly have been done a, a really you know, remarkable work in dealing with, with poverty and also tracking the phenomenon of Jewish poverty. So can you can you talk to that a little bit?
0: Sure. Um, I think I'll start off by saying we have looked at poverty from a different lens for many years. Uh, and of course, you're right. Jewish Federations, ours is 118 years old. We've been working with helping refugees or whoever it may be who is poor coming to Philadelphia and living here. But it's clear that poverty um, within the six generations who are alive today has completely overwhelmed a a big part of our community. And the manner in which we need to address it to have the best impact has changed. When you talk about innovation, if there's somebody who's interested in funding innovation, in this area, you have the biggest impact. And I'll give you a couple of examples. um, we created a special kind of software that tracks referrals for people so that if you come in through one particular agency, Jewish Family and Children's Services, for instance, we can make sure that if you have a mental health issue that you are talking about with this particular social worker, that you may have a hunger issue, you may have a housing issue, you may have a job-related vocational issue, that we're trying to do wrap-around, holistic care for that person so that they can get out of poverty faster and in a more impactful way. When we feed people, we've used the innovation of digital choice technology in order to make sure that the food that we're giving to that person is food they know how to use. So for instance, if you're a Russian Jew, we're not giving you peanut butter because you don't don't like peanut butter. You weren't brought up with peanut butter. You don't know how to deal with peanut butter. So we're going to make sure that we're giving you, I don't know, tuna fish or sardines or whatever it may be. That is healthy and we're tracking your health and we're tracking what we're giving you and we're incentivizing you to um, take advantage of everything that our food pantries have. You can now order, just like Instacart, your healthy food uh, that you're either gonna be pick that, are, that you're gonna pick up or you're gonna get it delivered to you through your app on a phone. And as you probably know, or maybe you don't know, most people who are in poverty will have a mobile device. That is everyone's touchstone. It's no longer a rich person's thing to have. You might not have the you know, iPhone 10, but you're gonna have something in order to communicate with the world or you'll go to the library and use a computer whatever, but people are digitally connected. And so now we we have a system by which you, with complete dignity and focus on your health. If you're diabetic, we will not show you on our digital choice screen anything that will impact your health adversely. And then we will make sure that food gets to you. So we feed more people that way. We change their health. And I'm very happy to say that the uh, National Institute for Health and University of Pennsylvania, the medical system is working with us on a, a grant pilot project to prove what I just said, that the people that we're feeding are healthier and that, and that's one way of getting a person out of poverty too, right? If they are focused on improving themselves and they feel better and they have less health problems, they will have less expenses and more money to uh, push themselves out of their condition.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the, the, you know, the face of Jewish poverty in Philly? How does it look like? You know, is it a bigger problem than it was? Uh, how is it evolving? Are the poor of today the same poor of 20 years ago?
0: So no, let me put a little bit of perspective in here. Um, The Jewish population of Greater Philadelphia, and it's about 2,200 square miles that we cover, we have about 214,000 individuals. Depending on who you talk to, and uh, we're about to release our next population study, so this data is about 10 years old. We have around 25,000 people who are living uh, below the poverty line, and many of them are children. 15% of our Jewish community is of color. So, a percentage of the people who are in poverty are of color, but a big percentage are not. Some are coming from the Russian community, but some are coming from the Israeli uh, community of uh, people who have been around for a while in Philadelphia. We're talking about six generations of people. Many people think it's just the elderly. Yes, there's at least 10 to 15,000 people who are elderly who are in poverty. Some of them are Holocaust survivors. Some of them come from the former Soviet Union, but there's no typical Jew that is, uh, that is poor. There's no typical poor person that's Jewish. It is interesting what we've seen, interfaith families that have poverty. We see that some kids that are going to our Jewish day schools, our camps, for some children, our day camps are the way that they are getting food during the summer because they qualify for free breakfast and lunch during the year. So we've been very conscious. We've actually upped our number of day camp scholarships to make sure that we're reaching as many of those children as possible. And a lot of them are teenagers.
1: Yeah, I heard that um, it's a concern in healers as well. Like a lot of students that have food insecurity. And, you know, you wouldn't think of students as a population affected by poverty, but they are.
0: Temple University has a food pantry. Uh, You know, they're a local urban university in the in Center City, Philadelphia. And most definitely, you know, even the athletes who get a scholarship, many of them, they don't have enough money to pay for food. Thirty eight percent of our Jewish community cannot make ends meet. Thirty eight. Thirty eight. And the national figure uh, of people who are cannot make ends meet or are just managing is 20 percent. So in Philadelphia, we have a exploding problem. 14% 14% of our households have an income below $25,000. So, I mean, although sometimes we're in the national range, the additional factors that are going on, the fact that it, you know transportation is expensive and is not always easy. We have some suburbs out there. I just heard from one of my early learning centers that a whole bunch of teachers live a mile away from the bus stop, from the public transportation. And so already, if you're... Uh, early childhood teacher, you're not making a lot of money. It's, you're doing it for the love of the experience and for your training for wanting to be with children. But we had a whole bunch of them quit because it was too far away from the bus.
1: Right. So that, I mean, one of the problems we have with with poverty, with especially with Jewish poverty, is we don't have a standardized way of measuring it. Like Poverty is not, it doesn't look the same in LA than in New York.
0: Correct. And What we've tried to do is, um, you know, it's no longer that easy to figure out who's Jewish either. Right. Uh, And governmental regulations and, of course, common sense and uh, Mm -hmm. dignity, you know, you don't ask a person for their Jewish card, really. I mean, I don't mean that in a facetious way at all. What I'm what I'm saying is, you know, you can ask whether or not they keep kosher, but the majority of the population doesn't keep kosher, whether or not they're poor. So you really do have to do some. Digging and polite questioning to figure out whether or not they have any Jewish roots, and of course we take care of Jews and non-jews as I say Jews and those who live and, and or love them
1: you mentioned uh, a population study what is your I mean you don't have it yet, but what is your your hunch about how the Jewish population of philly is changing? you mentioned one is that fifteen percent are Jews of color, which is I guess it's a relatively new new phenomenon. Any other ways in which you think the, the population will change?
0: Well, I'm fortunate that we have not only an evaluations department here, that um, our Jewish community is uh, funding staff who are experts. Um, we have a director of social responsibility, Brian Gralnick, who spends an enormous amount of time with our non-Jewish feeding partners, right? So fill Abundance and share and the other ones to get a handle on who's poor and who's Jewish, outside of our statistical survey that'll be available at the beginning of 2020, um, what we're seeing is that the, the, the numbers are growing across Philadelphia. So you can take it from a statistical standpoint, Philadelphia, depending on who you talk to, is either the number one or the number two poorest cities uh, in the nation. And if you're looking at the number of children in poverty with a huge number and growth, So we have to look at that and extrapolate out and say, okay, if that's true, then our population of Jews in living in poverty has exploded as well. I will say, you know, that number of 25,000, many people have said it'll be over 40,000. And frankly, you know, people ask what keeps me up at night. It's how are we going to take care of that number of people? We don't, you know, we don't reach the goals that we need to now. And unfortunately, as you said yourself, feeding the poor, and focusing on ways to get people out of poverty is not a shiny thing to fund. So many individual people who have created foundations, it's not their top priority. It is either identity um, or it's engagement or it's a specific age group that they wanna uh, focus on. But disabilities and poverty are the two hardest things for which we need to raise money. And frankly, that's why the collective is so important. I know it sounds like an advertisement, but it's true.
1: So, so why do we make it shiny? Because I, I confront the same problem.
0: Well, that's why I think innovation is so important, right? When I talk about that software program that tracks people and their referrals and helps people lift, you know, has demonstratedly lifted people from poverty and given them the the hands up that they need. The um, the digital choice pantry that makes people healthier. This is the use of technology and innovation within. Taking care of the poor. Now, I will say we have not been able to solve the affordable housing crisis. We just know that we have this wonderful agency that is trying to build more and more affordable housing, and comes from the Jewish space. But again, for government regulations, anyone can take advantage of those affordable apartments. So we focused on hunger and we focused on innovation: how we can get referrals and connect people to the agencies that are already out there, because you know information is gold and for a lot of people in poverty they don't have the ability or the knowledge or the hand to pull them up and that's what we need to be
1: and and also i think that one of the one of the distinctions that are very harmful to the field is something that it, it doesn't get said in these exact words but it is as if that are deserving and undeserving poor in many cases, when people tell me, well, most of the poor are actually ultra-orthodox, what they are really saying is they're poor because they want to, meaning they're poor because they don't work, because they don't study secular subjects, et cetera. And the truth is that they're all, there are because of, of a particular situation that brought them to poverty.
0: Right. I mean, you know, I can point to a number of organizations with whom we partner, both in Israel and around the world. We don't have a huge Haredi population here, but, uh, you know, around the world um, that would dispute the fact that the Haredi don't want to be, or that they want to be poor. Right. <laughs> right? Right. Um, and I, you know, again, it goes back to what we started with, right? The, the prejudice that's out there about people who either don't look like me or practice Judaism like me. One of the things that we have to fight every day is that perception that there is a right way to be Jewish and that there is a right way to conduct oneself. And we are responsible for every single Jew. That means I can't turn my back whether or not I like the way that they treat me or that they treat our religion. Poverty is something we can actually solve. Poverty is something that we can actually use innovative ways to make the, the impact of poverty less. However, it is exceedingly difficult and it's generational.
1: But can we, can we really solve the issue of poverty? One of the, one of the pushbacks I get from funders when I talk to them about poverty is, well, you're right, but poverty is a bottomless pit and inform- I would
0: say the same thing, well, sorry to interrupt you, I, I, I would say the same thing about Jewish identity. I would say <laughs> the same thing about Jewish education. How many times have you heard, well that Jewish school will be out of business in five years, so I'm not going to contribute to it. How dare we pull our, our, put our backs towards a, a, a possible solution? We have to try.
1: If you had sort of a magic wand, you know, and you would say I would like this aspect of poverty to be funded, fully funded, because I think that's going to really change the situation for a lot of people. What would that be?
0: Food insecurity. No doubt about it. We can use the technology that we see in Amazon every day, all of those technologies to find the poor, to feed the poor. We have enough food. We just have to get it to them. We have to educate people to speak up and to deliver or to cook We have, in Philadelphia, we have grocers who work with us. We have food producers. We have insurance companies. We have a whole bunch of people who really don't want any person to go home hungry. And what we have to do is marshal those resources. And we can do that. And by the way, if a person isn't hungry, they can work. If a person isn't hungry, they can function in this world. They might still have a mental illness, but they at least will be healthier, you know, and they will be able to work and go to school and better themselves. And so food insecurity is a major, major pillar in which somebody can have great success. But we'll also say making sure that there is a network of care, looking at a person holistically and saying to that poor person, okay, now that we have given you an avenue to learn how to eat healthy and to get the food for X number of times, what other benefits are there that we can work with you on? How can we work with volunteers and with the benefits that are out there from the government and others to make you whole?
1: Yeah, access to benefits seems to be, and I'm not an expert in the issue of poverty, but from what I'm learning, access seems to be a very big issue.
0: And there's two sides of access. So access, knowing about it, about which we've just discussed, is one thing. Advocacy is another. Right now in Pennsylvania, there's a whole bunch of legislation that clearly is written by Legislators who are very well-meaning, who want to protect the coffers of taxpayers, etc., totally get that. But they're not looking at the bigger picture of how, if you cut out a benefit over here, you're actually going to spend so much more money on that person later. And there's right. so much resor- research about it. And so it frustrates me. And therefore, the second pillar of this is advocacy. You know, if we funded more advocacy, more research more thoughtfulness about tackling poverty we would go so far you know as i said we've done a lot of work ourselves but man we took a lot of time and it took a lot of energy because we didn't have the money that we needed to you know make it a moonshot project uh, and and throw a lot more at it
1: Given your background in issues of domestic violence, abuse, sexual violence, how do you think we're doing in the Jewish community on these issues? Are we underserving victims?
0: Yes, we are underserving victims. We do not talk about it enough. We don't talk about it with a solution in mind. We shake our heads. We sometimes fund some level, uh, some of the shelters and the other ways that we are Uh, trying to protect primarily women and children, although obviously there are men. It's getting a little bit better, but frankly, there's such denial because it's such a horrific topic. Nobody really wants to think about the violence that happens behind closed doors, but the numbers have not gone down. One in eight women have been sexually assaulted in their lifetime. That, That statistic has not changed since I was a prosecutor. That scares me. There are many more congregations that will put a flyer in the bathroom that says, are you scared? Call this hotline. That is amazing. That's great. We should keep doing that. But we need to have many more people who understand how difficult it is to break the cycle of violence. It's the same as the cycle of poverty. It can be demoralizing and very difficult to work in that field.
1: And in that sense, the Me Too may be a double-edged sword in a way, because it highlights certain types of behavior, but it doesn't, or he hasn't yet focused enough on this kind of stuff. I don't
0: know. I I mean, it's a great question. Um, I don't know enough to be able to answer that question. I will tell you that, although I am completely disgusted by the the, uh, accounts that I'm reading, uh, you know, whether it be through Gamani and Facebook or in the press or wherever I've heard about it, I'm not surprised uh, and I'm glad that we're talking about it. I think it's, I'll tell you a humorous part of this, right? In, In the Jewish world, particularly in the philanthropic world, one greets one in a very friendly relationship oriented way. I'm a hugger, you know, thankfully I've been taught to always say, I'm a hugger, may I give you a hug? Most people in the Jewish community, they expect it. Right. But I have I've learned, too, from from what's happened with me, too. I have also understood a little bit differently. It's not about you can't hug a person with a kippa. You have to ask everybody. So I'm I'm grateful we're talking about it. Of course, we have to do more. We have to do more on so many fronts. Uh, we can't be disillusioned or dissuaded because there are more problems that we haven't yet addressed.
1: Thank you, Naomi, for these amazing insights. And I think it gives us a lot of food for thought and a lot of inspiration and and an optimistic view of of the future, which we sorely need. So thank you.
0: Thank you. It was wonderful.
1: You can learn more about Naomi's work and the life-sustaining work of the Federation at jewishphilly.org. And that's it. This is the last episode of season one of What Gives? Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to these conversations as much as I've enjoyed recording them. We are already planning future seasons with new interviewees, new ideas, and maybe some new segments and format too. Speaking of which, keep sending us your ideas. We really want to hear from you. This podcast is like the Jewish Funders Network, a network that is fed by your ideas and your suggestions. So... Guest ideas, haikus, stock tips, whatever you want to tell us, write to us at podcast at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at www.jfunders.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. Be sure to stay subscribed to this podcast on your podcast app so you won't miss season two when it's ready, which will be very soon. I leave you with this thought from Viktor Frankl. I recommend that the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast be supplemented by a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. Stay responsible, stay free, keep giving, keep dreaming, and join us for the next season of What Gives?